But last week we preached out of Isaiah chapter 6, and we preached on the throne room of guidance. Isaiah comes to a time of turmoil in his life, but in the throne room he finds a point, place, and anchor of stability for his situation. This morning I want us to go with the Hebrews writer into the throne room of grace and see what the Lord has for us and how He can help us. Hebrews chapter number 4, let's begin reading at verse number 9. The Word of God says, There remaineth therefore a rest to the people of God. For he that is entered into his rest, he also hath ceased from his own works as God did from his. Let us labor therefore to enter into that rest, lest any man fall after the same example of unbelief. For the Word of God is quick and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing asunder of soul and spirit and of the joints and marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. Neither is there any creature that is not manifest in his sight, but all things are naked and opened unto the eyes of him with whom we have to do. Seeing then that we have a great high priest that is passed into the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our profession. For we have not an high priest which cannot be touched with the feeling of our infirmities, but was in all points tempted like as we are, yet without sin. Let us therefore come boldly unto the throne of grace, that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help. In time of need. Let's read verse 16 once more for emphasis. Let us therefore come boldly unto the throne of grace, that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the time that you've given us this morning. We thank you for the safe traveling mercies that have brought us to your house. Lord, help us now. There's many things I'm sure that are on our schedules and many uh, matters of business that need to be tended to. Lord, even considering thinking about the things that have taken place in this past day, so easy for the distractions of the world to crowd into our minds. But I pray, Father, that You'd help us to draw away from the world, draw nigh unto You, hear the preaching of Your Word for the next few moments. Pray that You'd speak to each heart. Lord, You knew who would be here, who wouldn't be here. Lord, those that are here this morning, I believe You have something for them. I, I don't believe You do anything on accident or without purpose. So you've not brought them here with no purpose in mind. You have something for them. So I pray that you'd help us to all have our hearts surrendered and our ears open. Lord, that you'd do a work in our hearts that we not soon forget. Lord, we love you. We ask all these things in Christ's name. Amen. It's not necessarily settled who wrote the book of Hebrews. If you were to ask me, you've got to be careful asking me. Amen. I might lead you wrong. But I believe the Apostle Paul wrote the book of Hebrews. I can think of no better person to write the book of Hebrews than the Apostle Paul. For the book of Hebrews is sort of to the Jew what the book of Romans is to the Gentile. Both of them are the inspired Word of God. Both of them are exactly what God would have them to be. Every single word, every single thing in them is exactly appropriate. But how many of you know that the first key to rightly dividing the Word of Truth is to understand that though all things are written for us, not all things are written to us. As dispensationalists, we understand that God wrote the Bible on purpose. As a sovereign God, He understood that we'd need help in every dispensation. 
And so we get help from every portion of the Word of God. I don't care if you're reading the book of Genesis. I don't care if you're reading one of the minor prophets. I don't care if you're reading the book of Song of Solomon. I don't care if you're reading the book of Revelation, reading one of the Pauline epistles. If your heart is open, you can get some help out of the Word of God. But any Bible student would uh, undoubtedly understand not everything is written to us. There are things that are written to other individuals. I think one of the struggles most folks have with the book of Hebrews is because as a Gentile, I don't know about you, I don't know what your, uh, what your DNA would tell you, but I, I know me, I'm not Jewish, amen? I'm certainly not Jewish by blood, and I'm certainly not Jewish by culture. I, I don't have the mind of a Jewish individual, and they do have a particular mind that is tailored uh, by, by 2,000 years, or 4,000 years rather, of being God's elect people, and their mind operates in a certain way. We read the book of Romans, and and it's like truth just pours forth to us. I believe probably the Jewish mind would read the book of Romans and struggle with it in the same way that many of us struggle with the book of Hebrews. One of the keys to understanding the Word of God is you've got to put yourself in the shoes of the people that it was written to. You've got to try to key your mind in to uh, what a Jewish mind would be thinking. And the book of Hebrews is written that it might reconcile for the Jewish mind how that grace and the new covenant and the person of Jesus Christ is the completion and the culmination of the Old Testament law. If we could use old terminology, some of y'all may not have heard it, but it sort of tells us how the Old Testament and the New Testament gee and haw together. How that they communicate one to the other. And how that when Christ came, He didn't came to do away with the law. He came to fulfill the law for you and I. So it's no surprise that in the book of Hebrews, we come to chapter 4, and we find what I believe to be one of the most important words in the entire Word of God. It's found in verse number 16. There's a word that jumped out at you, and there's a word that jumped out at me. And somebody tell me, what word in chapter 16 jumped out, or in verse 16 jumped out at you? Somebody tell me. Grace, grace, grace. Oh, what would we do without the doctrine and truth of the grace of God? Grace is the principle and idea that all that is Jesus Christ becomes ours because all that belonged to us became His. The fact that He became like us so that we could become like Him. The fact that our sins were laid upon Him and His righteousness laid upon us of no good works, of no self-interest and of no self-energy, of no merit, We've not done a single thing to earn the blessing of God. It comes by grace. In Isaiah chapter 6, we talked about the throne room of guidance. But the Hebrew writer, after a pretty lengthy discourse of of, uh, three and a half chapters of talking about how that God has dealt with humanity... And uh, chapter number 1 says that God, who at sundry times and in divers' manners, spake in old time by the holy prophets. He's saying God spake in different ways in different dispensations. He says in this dispensation of the church age, since Calvary, God has spoken to us by His own Son. And he's showing us how that the cross of Calvary is the end of righteousness for all them that believe. How that the Old Testament works of the law are of no benefit to you and I. He talks about in chapter number 3 a rest that's left for the people of God. Now, some of you are saying, well, what does that mean, preacher? Well, remember, you've got to think about it in a Jewish mind. For the Jew, under the Old Testament law, though he was not saved by works, he was required to do works. 
He lived as best as he could according to the law. His entire life and existence was one of rules, one of work, one of labor. The only day that he had to rest was the Sabbath day, what we would know as Saturday. That was the rest day. Paul looks back to that and he says, don't you see that there's a picture here? All throughout the first six days of the week, you have to work by your own energy. Then comes the seventh day. You get to rest because God is rested. God rested on the seventh day, not because He's tired. How many of you know this? Not because He's tired, but because He's finished. Right? Hebrews writer is saying that we get a rest now in the person of Jesus Christ, not because uh, we have, uh, not because we're tired, not because we can't go on, but we get a rest now because the work is finished on Calvary. So he's talking about this rest. Very quickly, he's going to transition into the priesthood of Jesus Christ. And how many of you know that Jesus Christ is our great high priest, seated at the right hand of God the Father? It's in this context, sandwiched between these two ideals, the idea of rest and the idea of priesthood, that he inserts this truth about the throne room of grace. Let me just say to you this morning, more and more in my life I see a need for grace. You'd think the closer you get to God, the less need you'd see of grace. But the funny thing about it is the only folks who think they don't need grace in their life is the folks that are farthest away from God. The closer you get to God, the more you're going to see you need grace. Because the closer you get to God, the worse you're going to see yourself and the holier you're going to see Him. And so as there is this journey in the book of Hebrews to try to understand what God's provided for us in the person of Jesus Christ, Hebrew writer pauses in the throne room so that we can get a picture of Him who's made all things possible. And I want to preach to you for a few moments, give you a few thoughts about this throne room. I want you to notice first off with me the occasion of the throne room. As we've studied this, and we'll find this to be true in our third throne room, and I believe we'll find it to be true in any of them we look at uh, after that, there's always something that takes place that brings someone into the throne room. And you know that's true even if you look at history. I mean, people didn't just hang out in the throne room. If you weren't the king, and if you weren't one of his attendants, you didn't enter the throne room unless you had business in the throne room. I found that to be true even in our Christian lives. It's sad to say, but that's how it is for most of us. We're like the Jews that Malachi prophesied to when he said, Who would kindle a fire at mine altar for naught? He was saying, Who of you would come into my presence except you needed something? You know the sad truth, that's how we are. Most of the time we treat God like a spare tire. We stick Him in the trunk of our life. We pay no mind to Him until the snow hits. Amen? We pay no mind to Him until something goes wrong, until the tire goes flat. So there's something that occasioned this entrance into the throne room. And I see three things just very quickly. Three things that, that give us a reason to go into the throne room of grace. Or in other words, if I could just say it real plain, three things that drive us into the prayer closet and into the presence of God to seek help. Look with me at verses 9 and 10. The Word of God says, There remaineth therefore a rest to the people of God, for he that is entered into rest, he also hath ceased from his own works, as God did from His. Now, there's probably a lot of fussing and fighting that could be done about this, but I'm going to tell you what I think about the book of Hebrews. I believe the book of Hebrews is written to saved individuals. I believe it's written to saved Jews that had been saved by the grace of God. 
When Paul's talking about entering into a rest, this same Paul was the one that had tried to free the Galatian church from the shackles of legalism and the bondage of self-effort. Now as he writes to these Hebrew believers, he's trying to get them to understand that Christ finished the work on Calvary. You don't have to keep the Old Testament law. There is a rest for you now. The same way that when God finished the work of creation, He rested. When Christ finished the work of redemption, hey, you can rest now. He's not saying we don't serve God. He's not saying we don't try to live for the Lord. What He's saying is this. Your righteousness is in any way, is not in any way dependent upon your own good works. There's a rest now because the work has been finished. So I see in this passage that conquest is a pretty good reason to go into the throne room. What's He trying to get them to do? He's saying, I want you to grow beyond the place where you think that doing something good makes you a better Christian. And you say, oh, that's confusing, preacher. I thought we were... Oh, yeah, you serve the Lord. But here's the thing, friend. We serve the Lord because of what He's done in our life. Not so He'll do something in our life. We serve... Well, that's the way faith and works works. Uh, there's so many... I mean, there's people who want to get in the ditch on each side. I mean, there's some folks who want to say uh, that we're saved... And we are saved by faith without works. The Word of God is very clear about that. Some folks see that as a license to laziness. I'm going to tell you something. If God ever gets a hold of your heart and you fall in love with Jesus Christ, nobody will have to prod you. Nobody will have to push you. I remember hearing a story one time about an old preacher sitting out, uh, uh, sitting there behind under an oak tree by a train track, and he was watching the trains go by. And a fellow was walking by, and he heard someone laugh, and he looked over, and here's this old preacher sitting under this oak tree, and he's watching trains go by. And a train would go by, and that preacher would say, Hallelujah! And that preacher would say, Glory! That preacher would start to laugh and start to clap and start to praise in God. Finally, the fellow walked over and said, Hey, old preacher, what are you getting so excited about? It's just trains going by. He said, Oh, brother, it's just good to see something uh, that will follow without having to be pushed. Amen? Truth of the matter is, you fall in love with Jesus Christ, you won't have to be pushed and prodded and begged and bribed. You'll want to serve God. Amen. But then there's the other side of it, friend, and that's this, that we're saved by faith and our works don't do anything to make us more saved. Saving faith produces works. There's no question. But saving faith is just that. It's not, sa- it's not saving faith and works. It's saving faith that works. Amen? So Paul's saying, I want you to grow beyond that place. I want you to gain ground in your Christian walk. Boy, there's nothing tougher than determining to grow for the Lord. You make your mind up to grow in the Lord, I promise you, you're going to have a battle on your hands. You make your mind up to serve God, I promise you there'll be times you'll be driven into the throne room of grace. He says, hey, listen, by the way, we'll preach on it here in a second, but notice what he says. He says, find uh, mercy and find grace to help in time of need. I think that we have to go into the throne room if we're going to grow in the Lord. I think that's the only way. For far too long, we've had this thing in our head that we could grow in the Lord just by trying real hard. I mean, listen, if if you don't take another thing away from this preaching this morning, I want you to get what I'm about to say to you right now. You know, preachers say it about five, six times in the message. But I want you to get this this morning, that the Christian life is advanced and lived not through self-effort, but through surrender. Through surrender. Through surrender. Through surrender to the leading of the Spirit of God. That's the only way. You're not going to grow apart from the prayer closet. You're not going to grow apart from the throne room. Only by entering into the presence of God, only by getting in the prayer closet, only by seeking God's help can you grow. I want you to look at verse 11 with me. Notice not only conquest, verse 11 says, Let us labor, therefore, to enter into that rest, lest any man fall after the same example 
of unbelief. Now, let me be an expositor for a moment. Can I do that? If you don't study your Bible, you'll read that and think that's talking about losing your salvation. But that's not what Paul's talking about at all. Now, maybe if he's talking to Gentiles, that's what it'd be about. Uh, it still wouldn't be because you can't lose your salvation. But I can see how you'd think that. But he's talking to Jews. And the correlation, the parallel, the metaphor that he is drawing, the allegory he is pointing to, he's looking back to the narrative of the children of Israel that were wandering through the wilderness. Now, let me ask you something, our Bible students. Uh, and stick with me now. I mean, this is paid. Put your waders on. We're going to get deep, okay? As you look at the typology of the children of Israel, by the way, all those things written for our admonition, they're examples of what the Bible says. All of those things. As we follow our typology, can I ask you something? At what point, if you see the nation of Israel as one man and, and the journey through the, out of Egypt and through the wilderness as the Christian experience, at what point in their journey did they get saved? Now, wait a minute before you answer. There's some that want to say when they made it into Canaan. I disagree with you. There's some that would want to say when they got the law. I disagree with you. There's some that want to say when they drank water out of the rock. I disagree with you. I'd propose to you that in that picture, in that type in the Old Testament, the moment in which they got saved, if we were to see them collectively as one individual and try to apply that to our lives, I think it'd be easy to see that it could be none other time than when the angel of death was passing over and the blood of the Lamb had to be shed and applied to the lintel and applied to the doorpost. Only then would God look upon the blood, pass over them, and they would be guaranteed uh, exit or exodus from Egypt. Egypt's a picture of sin and of darkness and of paganism, heathenism. It's a picture of the lost individual in darkness. The only way they could get out of Egypt was through the blood that was applied. But Paul's not talking about that night when they came out of Egypt when he talks about falling after the same example of unbelief. He's talking about those that murmured in the wilderness. There was an entire generation that murmured against God in the wilderness. And so you know what they did? They died in the wilderness. They never made it into Canaan as God had promised. You say, what's that a picture of? Well, I mean, we ain't going to take the whole time to say it, but let's just give you a short overview of it. Uh, They came out of Egypt by the blood of the Lamb. That's a picture of the sinner's chains falling off and of bondage being broken and of them being saved by the blood of Jesus Christ. They pass through the Red Sea. They go into the wilderness. This is a picture of disbelief and unbelief in the Christian life. This is a picture of spinning your wheels. This is a picture of living in carnality. No matter what God gave us, it never satisfied them. Even that which He blessed them with became a burden to them. God gave them manna and they complained about the manna. God gave them water they complained about the water. God gave them quail they complained about the well. By the way, till you get right with God, you're never going to be satisfied. I mean, I ain't preaching on that, but let's just preach on it together. Till you get right with God, you're never going to be satisfied. You'll run from one thing to the other and nothing will ever satisfy you. You know why? It's not about what you've got, it's about where you're at. Not about what you've got. It's about where you're at in your spiritual walk and your spiritual condition. Canaan, not a picture of heaven, by the way. I know the songwriters want us to think that. And I guess that'll be okay. I, you know, I mean, you can, if you get too theological with your songbook, you'll throw everything out. Amen. I mean, we all we all treat the songbook with grace. We understand that. I know the songwriter wants us to think that Canaan is a picture of heaven, but it's not. It's a picture of the victorious Christian life. 
You say, what's Paul talking about when he says rest? He's talking about when they could go into the land that God had promised them. They could start to build once they got there. No longer a nomadic people dwelling in tents. No longer a wandering army. No longer a a, a rambling multitude. They'd put down roots. They'd plant crops. They'd raise cattle. They'd raise kids. They'd rest from their journey and from their travels. It's a picture of the victorious Christian life. When Paul is saying that you'll fall after the same example of unbelief, he's not saying you're going to lose your salvation. What he's saying is this, the same way that the nation of Israel died in unbelief, not trusting God to bring them into Canaan, the same way they died miserable in a desert and never got to enjoy the promises that God had made for them. These Jewish believers, these Hebrew converts, they too had a risk of trying to, uh, uh, trying to earn their presence, earn the presence of God through their good works. And they'd never enjoy the finished work of Calvary in its fullest capacity. They'd fall after, they'd die in the wilderness of discouragement and defeat. Hey, this isn't, man, this isn't my message, but this, I mean, the Spirit of God is leading this way, and I'm going to try to follow Him. There's going to be a lot of us die in the desert in our spiritual walk. We're never going to grow to enjoy the things that God has. Well, I'm not talking about earning your salvation. They didn't have to do a thing to come out of Egypt except let the blood be applied to their doorpost. That was the only thing. They didn't have to do anything. They didn't have to work. They didn't have to earn. Let me tell you something. If they were going to make it into the promised land, they were going to live the victorious life, they had to trust God. They had to serve God. Let me tell you something. There's going to be a lot of us dying in the desert, never knowing what it is. See, you, you think it's going to be constant battles, and it was constant battles in, 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 once they reached Canaan. It was constant battles, but God calls it a rest. You know why God calls it a rest? Because rest doesn't necessarily mean there's no conflict. You know that you'll burn yourself out quicker living the easy life and trying to do it your way than fighting the battle and doing it God's way. You'll wind up more miserable, more discouraged, more fed up, more unhappy trying to live out of the will of God and take it easy than you would right in the thick of the hottest battle trying to serve God and trying to do it His way. There's a rest for you in the presence of God and only the throne room can get you there. I see we need the throne room for conquest, but I see we need it for consistency. He said, listen, lest you fall after the same example of unbelief. And you know what a lot of us do? You know it was only about a two-week trip across the desert. And you know that there were several times, several... It wasn't until they reached Kadesh Barnea. Listen carefully now. It wasn't until they reached Kadesh Barnea that God sentenced them to 40 years of wandering. They, but they were murmuring before they ever got to Kadesh Barnea. They kept falling and falling and falling and falling. Finally, when they proved to God that they were not going to trust Him, God said, all right, you stay in the wilderness then. Stay in the wilderness. This whole generation will die. I'll raise up another generation and we'll go into the promised land. You know, it's discouraging when you can't stay consistent. It's discouraging. Somebody that really loves the Lord and wants to serve Him but struggles in faithfulness, hate themselves more than anybody else hates them. Listen now. They hate themselves more than anybody else does. They're disgusted with themselves more than anyone else is. They're fed up and put out with themselves more than anyone else is. I'm telling you this as a pastor. I see it all the time. It's easy sometimes to get critical about folks that aren't consistent. It's easy to get critical sometimes about folks that struggle with faithfulness. And trust me, I mean, if anybody knows that, that, that battle, if anybody knows that sentiment, 
then a pastor knows that sentiment. But do you understand, folks that are sincere, I'm not talking about the folks that are apathetic. I'm not talking about the folks who show up once a year on Christmas. I'm talking about people that want to do right, but just keep failing and just keep falling. I promise you that no one is harder on them than they are. They're disgusted with themselves. They want to do better, but they don't know how to do better. So how do you do it, preacher? You get in the throne room. You get in the throne room. You ask for grace. You seek mercy for where you've sinned. You ask grace for where you keep failing. You come boldly into the presence of God and seek His help. I see it for consistency. Let me give you a third thing. Look what it says in verse number 12. The Bible says, For the Word of God is quick and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing asunder of soul and spirit, and of the joints and marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. Now, let me tell you something. There's some passages of Scripture that have to have context. We're going to talk about the context in a second. Let me just say, that's a good passage of Scripture. You could read that thing any time, at any moment, and still come away with a good idea about the Word of God. The Word of God is quick, meaning it's living, and it's powerful, and it's sharper than any two-edged sword. But what is the Hebrew writer talking about? Now, he's been talking about this rest that they need to enter into. He's been talking about the danger of falling after unbelief. And then he says, but the Word of God is quick and powerful. What does that have to do with it? Look what it says in verse number 13. Neither is there any creature that is not manifest in his sight, but all things are naked and opened unto the eyes of him with whom we have to do. It's God with whom we have to do. We say it again. It's God with whom we have to do. He's the one we're dealing with here. We're not dealing with some kind of wooden or stone idol that has no ears to hear and no eyes to see. We're dealing with a God in heaven that sees everything in our life. I think not only conquest and consistency, but I think conviction can drive us into the throne room of grace. Saying, listen, God sees everything going on in your heart and life. There's nothing that is hidden from Him. I always say this. Well, not always, but sometimes I'll say in the invitation, you might as well be honest because God knows your heart anyway. That's the truth of it, friend. I mean, you may lie to me. You may lie to somebody else. You may lie to your spouse. You may lie to your friends. You may lie to your kids. You may lie to your parents. But the truth is, God knows what's going on in your heart. You might as well fess up to Him because He already knows conviction oftentimes. And that's probably, I hate to say it, but the sad truth is that's what probably drives me into that throne room more than anything else. God convicts my heart and shows me that I've sinned and that I've done wrong. But there is a throne room to go to. I want you to notice not only the occasion of this throne room, but notice the occupant of the throne room. You know, a throne in and of itself don't mean much. It's all about the person that sits on the throne. In the Old Testament, when God talked about the throne of David, He never... He never talked about the throne of Hezekiah, but he could have. Never talked about the throne of Uzziah, but he could have. Never talked about the throne of Jotham, but he could have. It was all the same throne. He only ever talked about it in two ways. It was always either the throne of the David that was or the throne of the David that will be. Because the person on the throne is more important than the throne itself. Anybody can sit on a throne, but very few people can wield a throne. And whenever the Hebrew writer brings us into the throne room, what does he tell us to look at? What does, he, what does he tell us to see before we see anything else? Look at verse number 14. He says, Seeing then that we have a great high priest 
that is passed into the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our profession. He sees first and foremost for anything. Hey, point number one, he's not in the throne room yet. He's talking about why we need to get in the throne room. He's saying if you're going to have conquest in the Christian life, if you're going to have consistency in the Christian life, or if you have conviction in your life right now, there's a throne room to go to. But it's almost, if you put yourself in Paul's, uh, Paul's pen's mind, if you could just walk with the Holy Ghost, it's like Paul is walking along saying, oh, I need to get to the throne room. If I'm going to live right, I need to get to the throne room. If I'm going to stay right, I need to get to the throne room. If I'm going to get right, I need to get to the throne room. Then all of a sudden, he walks to the door, he looks up, he don't see anything but the Son of God seated upon the throne. That's the centerpiece of this throne room. It, it was, and, and by the way, it always is. It was in Isaiah, it is in Hebrews, and it's going to be in Revelation. The person on the throne is always the first thing that the person sees. I want you to notice first off, he goes into the throne room. I want you to notice the capacity of the person on the throne room. What's he there as? Stop thinking about this a minute. He, how many priests do you know that sit on the throne? We know he's the King of Kings. That's why he's on the throne. We know he's the Lord of Lords because that's why he's in the heavens. That's not what the Hebrew writer talks about. The first thing that he said, he doesn't say, seeing we have a great high king, but we do. He doesn't say, seeing that we have a great high Lord, but we do. You say, why, preacher? Whenever Isaiah went into the throne room, he said, I saw the Lord high and lifted up. Whenever John goes into the throne room, he talks about the cherubs flying around him that's on the throne. He talks about the elders and the four beasts. But whenever the Hebrew writer goes in there, he doesn't say anything about a crown. He doesn't say anything about attendance in the throne room. He doesn't say anything about him being king. He doesn't say anything about him being Lord. You say, preacher, why is that? Because when he goes into this throne room, though it's the same throne room in Isaiah 6 and Revelation chapter 4, because of his circumstances, he goes into it. It's a throne room of grace. He's going in as someone that is broken. He's going in as someone that has failed. He's going in as someone that is struggling. When Isaiah goes into the throne room, he doesn't realize that he's got a problem yet. Oh, he realizes it down in verse 6 when he says, Woe is me. But when he first goes into the throne room, he doesn't realize the problem is with Isaiah. He's coming to a throne room for guidance. But the Hebrew writer says, As a broken and fallen and failing Christian, we have a throne room of grace to go to. And there's a high priest that sits on the throne in that throne room. There's an interceder, an intercessor seated upon that throne. That's his capacity. When we come to him, listen, he, he's the king of kings. There's no question. He's the Lord of lords. There's no question. And the book of Deuteronomy goes a step further and says he's the God of gods, and there's no question of that. He's the king coming in power and glory in Revelation chapter 9. There's no question about that. I'm glad that when I come in, I mean, listen, when I've sinned, a king can't help me. When I've sinned, the Lord can't help me. He'd be at all with me. When I've sinned, God can't help me. He'd be my judge. But when I've sinned and done wrong and I go into the throne room, the First thing I see is not a king. First thing I see is not a lord. First thing I see is not a god. First thing I see is a priest to make intercession for me. That's the capacity he sees him in. He sees him as a high priest. Notice not only his capacity, but notice his credentials. Look at the end of the verse. First he says, seeing then that we have a great high priest that is passed into the heavens. He says, we've got a priest when we've messed up. Who is that priest? 
What are his credentials? He says, Jesus, the Son of God. Oh boy, that's a mouthful right there. That's a mouthful. Because when he says Jesus, hey, there's a lot of Jesuses. I, I mean, listen, you go south of the border, you'd find 100,000 of them named Jesus. But that's not the Jesus that I'm praying to. He says this isn't just any Jesus, this is the Jesus. And he denotes, which it's interesting, that he calls him by his earthly name, but then he also calls him by his heavenly title. He's saying this is the same Jesus that's the Son of God, but it's also the same Jesus that died for your sins and mine. This is the one that loved you. This is the one that paid your sin debt. This is the one that cared about When you go, listen, when we go into the throne room of grace, we can't say that we don't know anybody. We can't say that we're surrounded by strangers. Because when we go into the throne room of grace, the one sitting on the throne is the one that loved us enough to die for us. He knows us by name. We know Him by name. It says, it's the Son of God that died for our sins. It's the one. And by the way, it, it speaks of the resurrection. You say, I don't see it speaking of the resurrection. Well, if this is Jesus, the Son of God, this is the same Jesus that died and was buried. But the Hebrew writer says, hey, He's not in the grave anymore. He's rose from the grave. He's ascended from the earth. He's seated at the right hand of the Father in this throne room. This is one that is powerful. This is one that knows us and one that loves us. Notice the third thing. We see not only his capacity and his credentials, but I want you to notice his compassion. Verse 15. If I don't, listen, if I don't watch myself, I'm going to preach on verse 15 for the next six hours, okay? So if I get going long, uh, you, I mean, wave at me a couple times, but then if I don't see it, just throw a shoe at me, okay? Verse 15 says, For we have not an high priest which cannot be touched with the feeling of our infirmities, but was in all points tempted like as we are yet without sin. Now, there's two facts stated here. There's a present fact and there's a past fact. We always focus on the past fact. Let me say, there's great comfort knowing he was tempted in all points like as we are, yet without sin. There's great comfort in that truth. It's great comfort to me to know that no matter what I've been through, I was thinking about this, uh, whenever uh, whenever Miss Brenda was testifying, we get to feeling sometimes like we can't make it, we can't make it, we can't make it. Can I let you in on a little secret? We can't make it, but we're with him and he's already made it. Amen? He's already made it. We're with Him. You say, what if I can't keep up? Then He'll pick you up and carry you. We're hid inside Him. What a blessing. No, He's already been through it. and He's already been tempted. And yet without sin. But let me say that I think sometimes we ignore that present fact. See, sometimes we think of this as a past thing. Notice it again. Read it carefully. It doesn't say, for we had not an high priest, which could not be touched with the feelings of our infirmities. Sometimes we get to thinking, because the end of verse 15 talks about his earthly ministry, we get to thinking that the beginning of verse 15 is talking about his earthly ministry. We lump it all together and think sometimes, oh yeah, he knew what it was like, he knew what it was, he knew what uh, we had gone through and been through. And that's true. That's not what the Hebrew writer is saying in that first part of the verse. He's saying, for we have not, present tense, an high priest which cannot, present tense, not which could not, but which cannot be touched with the feelings of our infirmities. You understand, not just he's hurt like you've hurt, but when you hurt, he still hurts. When you weep, he still weeps. When you groan, he still groans. You say, how does he do that? How does he do it? For I don't know. I don't know how he did it the first time. He's the Son of God. Nothing's beyond his reach. Nothing's beyond his strength. 
but in some way as the high priest of our profession, in some way as the Son of God, but also as the Son of Man. And by the way, do you know, He didn't quit being the Son of Man when He resurrected. He's got a glorified body. He doesn't. He's got a glorified body like we're going to have a glorified body. We'll not cease to be man anymore when we get a glorified body. We'll continue to be man, but we'll have a glorified body. He's still the Son of Man. Not just He was the Son of Man. He's still the Son of Man. What, what, <laughs> what did they say? This same Jesus shall in like manner come again. He's still the Son of Man. He still feels our pain. He still knows what we're going through. Listen to me. When you hurt, it reaches heaven. When you weep, those tears may look like they're falling down, but they're falling up to the throne room of grace. And when you cry, you may feel like no one hears, but it echoes in the ears of the Son of God. We see His compassion. We see not only the occasion of the throne room and the occupant, but notice here, I like this, notice the offer of the throne room. What can we get there? Why do we come to it? What can we get there? Well, I thought this was interesting. Look at verse number 16. The Bible says, Let us therefore come boldly unto the throne of grace, that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Notice that. Help. It's a place where we can get help. It's interesting. I, we, we was hoping to move yesterday. I was just goofing off, just joking around. I don't expect anybody to get out. But I, I put on Facebook. I said, Anybody want to help me move today? <laughs> And uh, you find out that you've got a lot of good friends. But let me tell you something. Not everybody that will friend you on Facebook is your friend. I promise you that. You say, how do I know? You just tell them it's time to move. Amen. You'll find out how many are your friends and how many are not. And, uh, you know, we all need help. I don't care who you are. There's times you need help. I don't care how bulletproof you think you are. You need help. We all need help. And the throne room is a place where we can find help. What kind of help? Well, I want you to know those three things. I'm just going to touch on them. I want you to know, first off, that we can find a forgiving help. What's the first thing we find? And by the way, this order is on purpose. This order is distinct and on purpose. What's the first thing we do? Look at it again. The Bible says that we may obtain mercy. Mercy, and these are classic definitions, mercy is God not giving us what we do deserve. You say, how do I get grace in the throne room? Well, first you have to get mercy in the throne room. You know the problem with us? We want to come into the throne room and get grace before we've got mercy. You say, what do you mean, preacher? I mean, we come into the throne room and we've got unconfessed sin. We've not tried to get the mercy from God, but we want to come in and get the grace of God. See, I thought I'd say, oh yeah, you're saved by grace. But you understand, both of these words are mentioned in this verse. There's compare and contrast here. Grace is the idea of God giving us things we don't deserve. Mercy is the idea of God not giving us what we do deserve. Do you understand in the same way that Esther, in entering into the throne room of King Ahasuerus, just by her presence she deserved to die because she came in unbidden. You say, preacher, are we coming in unbidden into the throne room? Oh no, we've been, we've been bidden, but we're having to knock when we come in. I'll show you that here in a second. When we come into the throne room, just by our very presence we ought to die, but because of the cross of Calvary, because we stand perfect in Him, when we come into the throne room, we can do like Isaiah did and point back to the altar where the sacrifice was made. We can say there was a sin debt that was paid. Christ paid my price upon Calvary. Lord, have mercy on me. Forgive me of my sins. Have mercy upon me. We see it's a forgiving help, but we see it's a fortifying help. The Bible says, and find grace. 
Mercy, God given us, not given us what we do deserve, but grace, God's given us what we don't deserve. We come in, we're getting strength. We're getting help. We're getting peace. Things that fortify us for this walk. And by the way, these all go, they correlate one to another. Hey, we go into the throne room because of conviction, right? We go into the throne room because of conviction, and we find mercy. But we go into the throne room for consistency, and we find grace. We find there is grace for every need, grace for every hour. doesn't matter what you're going through. God's not going to put you through anything that He won't equip you through. Uh, you may decide that you don't need God's help. You may fall flat on your face. But if you'll come into the throne room and confess your sins before God, then ask Him to do that which you cannot do yourself. Ask Him to give you strength. Ask Him to give you help. Ask Him to give you grace. Then He'll give you grace for what you're going through. Paul said, His grace is sufficient for me. And that was just as good at the end of Paul's life as it was at the beginning. There's old Paul laying on a chopping block. Nero's soldiers about to take his head off. And God's grace was still sufficient. It's always sufficient. It's a fortifying help, but I see that it's a faithful help. When can we come into the throne room? Grace to help in time of need. There ain't nothing worse than when timing don't line up. Huh? I mean, there ain't nothing worse. You, you ever had just the time and go go all sideways? We had every I, with, with all the, with this move, we had everything planned out. Because that's how I am. Believe it or not, I know I I seem sloppy and disorganized. But for some stuff, man, I mean, I got to have it planned out. And I know, and I had everything lined up, and it was perfect. I mean, I had it lined up. I, it was going to be exactly we we're going to be here at this time and there at that time, and then this was going to take place and that was going to take place. And then the buyers they could do this, they could do that. We call, we got our utilities, we got everything, and then the snow comes. <laughs> See, we're not looking for help except in a time of need. You're not going to get help till you confess a need. You know, you know why most people, you know why most Christians don't ever get any help from the throne room? They don't ever want any help from the throne room. They don't ever think they need any help from the throne room, so they don't ever get any help from the throne room. But I promise you, no matter how bleak it looks, no matter how dark it looks, when the time comes that you have... Hey, there's times we think we have need of help, but God knows that we don't have need of help. There's other times, listen now, when we have need of help and we know it's right down to the wire and there's no other way and God sweeps in at the buzzer and at the last moment and gives us exactly what we need. When you're in fear, when you're in frustration in times of need... There's a throne room of grace. Let me just share this final one with you. And I, and I, won't, even, I won't even go up there, okay? Make you feel better. I want you to notice the obtaining in the throne room. Now, how do we get it? We know why we need to get it. We know who we can get it from. And we know what we need to get. How do we get it? I found something interesting as I studied these verses. I, I, I began to look at what that word obtain means and find means and and I, I found this was interesting. Where it says obtain, every time that that word is used in the Bible, it always has the idea of taking something by your own choice. By your own choice. In other words, not the idea of necessarily someone offering you something, but of you taking something. For instance, the Bible, the Bible says that He took our infirmities. He did that of his own volition. He took them. The Bible says of the sower uh, and, and the parable of the kingdom of God says that he took the seed. That seed didn't offer itself. He took that. And I got to look and I found in Matthew chapter 7, verse 38, you know that word's used again, and it says, Ask and ye shall receive. 
And it's that same word that's said obtained here. He that asketh, receiveth. I thought, well, that's interesting. What about the word find? And I got to looking around. And you know what I found? I found in, in Matthew chapter 7, verse 38, it says, He that asketh, receiveth, and he that seeketh, And I thought, well, that's it. You know, I run out of words. That's it. You know, my little, my cute little illustration here. It's that's it. Holes in it. Because where are we going to find that you come boldly? I got to reading. And you know what it says? He that asketh receiveth. He that seeketh findeth. And he that knocketh, it shall be opened unto him. You know, when we come to the throne room of grace, listen now. We're not coming as intruders. We're not coming as strangers. We're coming as expected guests. But did you know that even an expected guest, if they got any manners, they knock before they come in. They wouldn't be coming to the door except they felt wanted. They wouldn't be coming to the door except they knew they needed something. But when they come to the door, not because you're going to kick them out, not because you don't want them there, but just as a show of respect, they'll always reach up and knock on the door. But isn't that a sign of boldness in and of itself? You know what you're saying when you come up and knock on that door? You're saying, I know you're going to open to me. I know you're going to let me in. I know you're going to see my face. I know you're going to hear my request. I know that you're going to meet my need. You say, preacher, what does it mean when it says come boldly? Does that mean we come in with an arrogant attitude? Does that mean we come in uh, bossing God around? No, when it says come boldly before the throne of grace, just like knocking on a person's door, what it means is when we come into the throne throne room, we come in knowing He's going to see us, knowing He's going to hear us, knowing He's going to meet our need, knowing He's going to do that which we need the most. We come boldly knocking in the throne room of grace. And then we ask. We ask. You don't get the things you don't ask for, at least most of the time. You don't get the things that you don't ask for. When I was growing up, hey, listen, you stick with me. We're We're about through. When I was coming in, when I was coming up, my mom is still this way. Me and her getting a fight every time I go over the house. Because she's food down my throat. My mama like that. She does it because she loves me. And I'll come through the door and she'll say, are you hungry? I'll say, no, I'm fine, mama. She'll say, are you sure? Well, that in and of itself, I mean, wait a minute now. I mean, I, I'm not, I thought before I answered, you know. I'll say, no, I'm, I'm sure. She'll say, we've got cookies. I guess it's going to change. I said, no, 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 I'm, I'm all right. She'll say, I was just about to cook supper. No, no, no. I, I, I'm okay. She'll say, I got a turkey I can defrost. Mama, no, I'm fine. That, that was how my mama was. But you know how dad was. And by the way, it's not a heavenly mother. It's a heavenly father. Dad don't do me that way. You know what he says? He says, son, you're welcome to anything in the refrigerator. Usually he'll look at Mama and say, he knows he's home. If he wants something, he'll ask for it. We don't have a heavenly mother. We've got a heavenly father. God's not going to run us down and shove something in our life. But you know what he says to us through those exceeding great and precious promises? He says, listen, when you come into my throne room, you're coming home. When you come into my house, you're entering into your house. The refrigerator's yours. Anything's yours. Open the pantry. Come on in. If you want something, just ask for it. Because what's mine 
is yours. And then here's another funny thing about them, and I'll close. Is you know what Dad usually says? Now listen now. Dad, you, I, they didn't even know they was going to be in there. It's like, it's like watching cops and seeing somebody you know. Have you ever that happened to you? didn't even know they was going to be. Dad will usually say, if he wants some, he'll ask for it. But he'll also usually say this. It's in there. Go get something if you want it. <laughs> you know, I mean, I come through the door and Mama disappears for three minutes and she comes back out and got a whole supper fixed. But Dad's not that way. That's just the truth. He'll say, it's in there. If you want it, go get it. He that asketh, receiveth. you got to ask. He that seeketh. You say, what does that mean, preacher? That means when He gives it to you, take it. It means when He tells you where it's at, go get it. Means when he puts the ball in your court and says, "This is what you need to do, do it." There's times that we're so helpless, uh, like the uh, like, uh, listen, we're laying on the side of the road, uh, broken and beat up, and dying outside of Jericho, and we need a good Samaritan to come along and bind our wounds and carry us to the end. But I'll be honest now, there's sometimes we're like that, and God will do that for us when we need that done for us. But then there's other times when God say, "Hey, it's in there. Go get it. It's here. Do it. This is." what you need. That's what you need. And this is what I need you to do. And if we'll do it, you know what we'll find? We'll find that everything that's His is ours. And we'll find that the throne room of grace is just that. It's a place where we can get what God's got without us having to do anything to earn it. You may be here this morning, you may say, oh, I need grace in my life. You may be you may be saved, but God, you just need a touch of grace in your heart and in your life. Maybe there's something going on in your life and you need the Lord's help and the Lord's strength. Can I invite you this morning into the throne room to see the high priest and to go into the storerooms of His grace and get what you need?